in store for us today. And today we're honoring educators, but um, in reality, our, our honoring is of the Lord and how he uses, uses people to impact others. Whether you're a teacher or a, or a pastor or a carpenter or a whatever you are, God wants to use you to impact people. That's his desire. That's his design. He's put you together in such a way that, that you're uniquely designed to take your background and use you in other people's lives. Now, that's only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what he wants in your life. Let me just want to run through just a couple of things that are happening in our church calendar. Um, on September 9th, which is two weeks from today, we'll be celebrating 10 years of existence of Centerpoint Bible Church. 10 years. Now, that's not long for a church, but wow, that's long in my mind. I can't believe it's been 10. It seems like it's just going by like that. But I see pictures of me 10 years ago, and I realize, no, it has been a long time. So I didn't have any gray hair there then, believe it or not. So 10 years. And uh, what that'll look like is on, on, we'll celebrate that on the 9th, but also on the 16th. Now, that's a Sunday, and that evening, we're having a picnic to celebrate our 10 years, and I hope that you will make it out. The picnic location is right here in Folly Waters at Randy and Carla Pearl's home, um, and something special will happen that night. That night, we'll be having a baptism service, and I want to say just a brief word about that. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the method of the means for you to communicate that to your, the people in your life is through baptism. That's the way for you to identify with the finished work of Christ. Baptism doesn't save anybody. We are saved by a decision of the heart to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But after we're baptized, we want to communicate that to people. And the best way to do that is through baptism. So on the 16th there in Randy and Carla's pool, we'll be having a baptism service. would love for you to be baptized that day. Now, Pastor Billy, on, on September 9th, will be having a class right after church that day. That's in two weeks. And we can sit down with you and answer every question that there is about baptism. Right, Pastor Billy? You got it. I know you do. Yes. So keep that in mind. We'd love to, to celebrate your story. You know, everybody has a story. Central Bible Church has a story. I've got a story. And with it being a day that we're honoring educators, I, I want to take a minute and, and tell you part of my story. You see, I think a lot of times you see a guy up here who's a pastor, and you think I was probably born with a Bible underneath my arm, right? Maybe a clerical collar, you know, when I, when I was born. Not the case. Not the case. I mean, just, just to demonstrate that to you, when I graduated from high school, a lot, of, a lot of young people, when they graduate from high school, maybe they're, they're part of a church like this, and, and they decide they'll go off to Bible college because they want to be a, a pastor or a missionary or something like that. When I graduated from high school, I'd never heard of a Bible college. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. If you'd have met me when I was a teenager, I was a horrible student. And I don't mean, you know, that I, that I did my homework late. I mean, I was the kind of kid, the kind of young person that if your daughter was going to date me at that point, teachers would come to your daughter and warn her not to date me. Say, how do you know that? Because it happened to my wife. We were dating. And teachers would come to her and say, 
why are you dating Mickey McDonald? Are you sure you want to do that? They warned her against me. I wasn't that bad of a kid. I just was always getting caught. You know, I don't know what happened. But (laughs) through about 10th grade, 11th grade, honestly, I, I had no desire for any kind of anything to do with the Lord I had no desire for anything to do with with furthering myself in any way, shape, or form. School was an audience for me. It was a place where I had an audience for my daily comedy routine. Where I would come in and just try to get everybody to laugh. Everybody to, to join in with me and laugh so that honestly I could cover up my pain. That's all it really was. I walked into a classroom my 11th grade year. There was a teacher. I'd, ha- I'd seen her in the hallway for two years. There was something different about her. There was something different. I walked in the classroom on the first day of school and I started my routine. I was going to try to take over the room and, and put on my comedy act. Mrs. Seldomridge called me to the side. And she said, they called me Mickey then. She said, Mickey... I know what all the teachers have told me about you. Really? Wow. My reputation precedes me. (laughs) She said, but I believe there's something different in you. And by the end of the year, we're going to see it. And listen, God used that woman to change my life. And so when it came time for me to decide what I was going to do after high school, I was going to be like Mrs. Seldomridge. I was going to be a teacher. That's what I was going to do. And so you may not know this, but I went to WVU. I studied education, and I was a teacher for six years right here in Berkeley County. But during that time, I met another teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he changed my life. Again, listen, we are made to have a relationship with God. It requires a change, and it requires someone to come alongside and teach us. And I want to do that today. I want to point us to Jesus. And and to do that, I want you to go with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 20. I want to answer a question today that that is on everybody's mind. And the question is, how can I be great? That's the question. How can I be great? Because it is everybody's heart a desire to be great. Politicians grab this and are using it even today. Make America great again. America was never great. America is the greatest over and over and over. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, you have to recognize from the things that we hear on the news that mankind desires to be great. But what Jesus is going to teach us today, a very important point in this passage that we're going to walk through, is this reality. Contrary to everything the world is telling you, contrary to everything the world has to offer, true greatness is found in serving God. That is what Jesus is going to teach us today. 
And I didn't know it then. I didn't know it in 11th grade. But Mrs. Selmeridge was a follower of Jesus. She was a follower of Jesus. And what I was seeing in her was a greatness. A greatness of pouring her life into other people. That's one reason why I love teachers. You guys have dedicated your life into serving people. Serving people. But we must be careful because the world system of greatness is broken. But Jesus is going to instruct us where true greatness is found. Matthew chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 20 through 28 and see this great, great, true story that happened to the Lord Jesus when he was on earth. It says this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons. Mom, two boys, two young men. And kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Verse 24. And when the 10, that's the rest of the disciples, heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as, in other words, that even as means in a similar way, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to really speak to our hearts from his word. Father in heaven, Lord, this is your word. This is the inspired word of God. Lord, use it now, we pray. We ask your spirit now to, to ring this true in our heart that we might respond. Apply these truths and, and allow us to have that, that will to respond to you and to go against the current and to see that true greatness is found in serving you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that man's greatest obstacle the greatest obstacle that man faces is pride. Pride. Pride is one that will sneak up and crush you and sneak up behind you and you don't even see it coming. The Bible has much to say about pride. In Isaiah chapter 14, it, it indicates that, that Satan, the devil, his original sin was pride. That he rose up against God and said, I want glory. And so he worked, just like we do, 
for that desire to have that, that fleshly need to be important, to be honored, to be glorified, filled. The Bible has much to say about pride. Proverbs 8.13 is, is helpful. Here's what it says. The fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil. Listen to this. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted speech and God hates them. God hates pride. And in James, it says that God opposes the proud. So he hates pride, and he opposes the proud. Oh, but he gives grace to the humble. In Psalm chapter 10, verse number 4, listen to the word of God. It says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts, all the thoughts of prideful man is this. There is no God. That's the thoughts of a prideful person. There is no God. So that's why I say man's greatest obstacle is pride. It's self. It's I want my way. It's I want my credit. It's I want to be great in my eyes. And great in people's eyes. As an example, turn back to Matthew chapter 3. I'm gonna, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for a little bit today. I want to say a word about the Gospel of Matthew. We're getting ready. While you turn to Matthew chapter 3, we're getting ready after next week, starting, starting September 9th, we're going to start and do a series of the Gospel of Matthew. Here's what we do at Centerpoint Bible Church. We take books of the Bible and we work through them phrase, sentence, paragraph at a time. From beginning to end. So on September 9th, we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to walk through. It's 28 chapters. It's going to take us a long time. But we're going to get through the whole Gospel of Matthew and see the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to somebody that I just want to mention briefly as an example of what greatness is. In Matthew chapter 3, verse number 11, we see here John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And here's what he says. I baptize you with water for repentance, speaking to these crowds. He says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, is an example of humility. He looks at Jesus, and, and John the Baptist was a popular man. He was a popular preacher of the day. I mean, he was, he was very much like, like the, the televangelist, like, like the, the most important pe- preacher in all of the region. He says, I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, you can turn with me there, just start to familiarize yourself with the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, this is Matthew 11, verse number 11. I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. I want to talk about greatness today. I want to talk about greatness and I want us to see that that contrary to everything the world tells us, Everything that's being pressed upon you of where greatness is, is a lie. It is a lie. 
Greatness is found in serving God. That is where, this is what Jesus has to say to us. This is the correction that Jesus is bringing to us. This is what Jesus wants to teach us today. That greatness is not found where the world says that it is. Look what the, look what the world says. This is in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, 17. But I've got one verse up here. Look what it says. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's what the world says. You want to be great? You want to be great? You need to have many people that you are influencing, that you are controlling. You're the top of the pyramid, and all the other people are answering to you. And you've got lots of resources And these resources allow you to do whatever you want to do, to have whatever your heart desires. So you're traveling the world and coming to your beautiful home and your lovely car and wearing all your lovely clothing. And you are a person of power. People, they jump when you say to jump. They're jumping when you walk in the room. How high does he want us to go? How high does he want us to go? Oh, that's you when you're great, according to the world. And the world says that there are some people, some unique people that have this special greatness in them. And they rise up just through the power of their personality. And people cower before him. And they are the great people. That's the world, folks. That's the world. That's the pride of life. And Jesus will speak against it. Today we're going to see in Matthew chapter 20. Go ahead and turn there now. You've already been there once. Go back. We're going to see the very words of Jesus is going to answer this call of greatness and going to explain to us what true greatness is. First of all, though, before we get into that, I want us to see man's man's broken pursuit of greatness. Verse number 20. I love this story. I tell you, this, this is just so real. This is just so real. Okay. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now the sons of Zebedee, let me tell you their names. Their names are James and John. And listen, they were the inner circle of Jesus' group. He had three men that he spent the most time with. Peter, James, and John. These guys are the inner circle with Jesus. And they call their mom over. And they say, Mom, hey, talk to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Now, this account is in, Matt, is in Mark chapter 10 as well. And, and I'm going to throw some things in at times that Mark chapter 10 shares some other light on it. But let's walk through and understand it. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And then before him, she asked him for something. In Mark chapter 10, it says that she came. Actually, it doesn't even say that she came. It says that the two boys came. The two sons came. So in Mark chapter 10, they don't even mention that it's the mother. She's there, but, but the emphasis in Mark 10 is on James and John. This is their work. They pushed mom to do this. And the question in Mark chapter 10, the first question is this. Jesus, will you do whatever we ask? Do your kids ever do that? Hey, mom, if I ask you a question, will you promise to give it to me? Yeah, right. Like I'm going to get played that way, right? So they come and ask this question. And look what the question is. Jesus says, what do you want? Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in the kingdom. 
Now, this is a broken pursuit of greatness. And the thing I want you to see here is the, the first thing that people try to use to bring them greatness is just other people. Using other people to elevate me. James and John use this woman and their mother and say, hey, go, go ask Jesus. Now, she's a special woman. When you, take, when you take the gospel accounts and put them all together, you find out, you know who this is? This is Jesus' aunt. Salome was her name. She's one of the three women that are at the cross when Jesus died. She's one of the two women who saw the empty tomb. She is the mother of Mary. I'm sorry, sister of Mary. This is Mary, Jesus' mother, sister. So the aunt of Jesus. So what's going on here? James and John, they, they, they don't work up the courage to ask this question. They don't do that. They send their mother and try to use another person for greatness. Mm. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, the word cup, is, it's an expression that means suffering, you see this, I'll give you the reference here in Mark chapter 10, number, number 14, Mark 14, where Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. Remember Jesus prayed that in the garden? A cup meant suffering. It meant that, that to be great in the kingdom of God would include suffering on this earth. Yes, it would. This is the teaching of Jesus. He says, are you prepared to drink this cup? And they said, sure, we're able. We can handle it. Hmm. The second thing I want you to see here is, is not to do is the broken pursuit of greatness. Not only is it using people, but it's relying upon my performance. I can do it. James and John are saying, yeah, 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 Jesus, we can suffer for you. But you know what? The very night that Jesus went to the cross... All 12 of the apostles abandoned him. Peter gets all the press, but James and John were hiding in the back of the room as well. Something we have to see here, though, is greatness in God's economy. Now hear this, and this is, this is no prosperity gospel. I am not going to tickle your ears right now. Greatness in God's economy includes suffering. It does. Greatness in man's economy, you avoid suffering. I avoid it. Greatness in God's economy includes the cup. You see that? They said, we want to be great. And Jesus said, you want to be great? You ready to handle the cup? Now, to support this in Scripture... Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look, look, what, look what the Apostle Paul records for us. He writes in verse number 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we don't lose heart. As he's going through struggles, we don't lose heart. He says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See what, see what God is sharing with us? That greatness in God's economy, because we are living here in this economy that opposes him, will always include suffering. 
Always. In 1989, um, on the Savage River, which is just behind the mountain, behind Kaiser, this upper right-hand picture, it, they had the, the world time travel, uh, um, world time trials, thank you, for the, for the kayaking slalom racing. And a couple of us piled in a car and went and saw it. Let me tell you how this works. It's amazing what they do. Anybody know what this is? You've seen this maybe on television? Well, I've seen it for real, okay? So what they do is they, they go down this river, okay? And they have these, these, these things that like hang down. They've got this cable across the water and they've got these, these like colored sort of like candy cane things that hang down. And, and what, the, what the kayakers have to do is they're coming down. I mean, this water is rushing. I mean, class four, class five rapids, the whole Savage River, it's five miles of nothing but class four and class five rapids when they allow the water out of Jennings Randolph Lake. I mean, it just, just thunders down the valley. And what they have to do is they, they're, they're coming down, I mean, they're just flying down, and they've got to turn their kayak and turn upstream and now go upstream through those candy canes. Now, they're not actually candy canes, but you've got the idea, Okay. And what was, I, I remember my mind's eye, what, what, the way it worked. They would turn that boat, and when that boat turned, and now it's, it's, it's across this way, and water is pushing them down, it just, it just pushed them so far down the stream. And so the key, the key, if you're going to be a kayak slalom racer, the key is you got to turn that boat quickly. So they would just spin that thing around like on a dime, and now they're coming right back upstream. And then down they would go. Listen. In the world's system, greatness is all about you. It's all about meeting you. You want. It's about using people and you performing. And the world is crushing down. And I'm call, Jesus is calling for us to turn the boat. But you gotta turn that boat quickly. You gotta turn that boat quickly and often. I find a lot of us, we, we got our boats almost turned. We're turned a little bit. And we know we're supposed to live for the Lord and serving him, but we're turned just a little bit. And part of us is still trying to turn back the other way. You know what's happening the whole time? You're being driven downstream. Driven downstream. So believers are, are trapped. They're trapped almost because their boats just have turned. Listen, you're better off to not even turn your boat than to half turn. Turn all the way, folks. We need to hear what Jesus is saying and understand that when your boat turns and you're coming upstream, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Jesus calls it the cup of suffering. Let me say a word about this affliction, about this affliction that we already referenced now, some things come under our life and, and they feel like affliction. It might be sickness or it might be the, the loss of a job or it might be some catastrophe in your life and all that is, the Lord uses all that to conform us to his image, but that is not what this affliction is. It, I'm sorry, it's not your cold, it's not your hangnail, it's not your bum knee. That's not what this affliction is. It's not your difficult boss. It's not the issues you have at home. That's not what this affliction is. That's not the cup of suffering. The cup of suffering is the opposition that comes your way when you live for Christ. That's the cup. 
The rest of it just goes with the territory of this earth. This world is, is going to be hard. You're going to get sick. Your vehicle's going to break down. You're going to hit a red light. Sorry. That's not affliction. Affliction is when you live for Christ. And because you're living for him, because your, your life points to him, difficulty, challenge comes your way. I had a teacher that did that. And I, I, didn't even know she, I didn't know she was a follower of Christ. But affliction came her way. I've seen other people in my life, I've seen some of you, that when you stand for Christ, the cup comes your way. And I know it's hard, but I want to say, that's where greatness is. Let's go back to our passage, Matthew chapter 20. I want to, find, I want to finish this broken pursuit I need to hurry along, though. Verse number 24. When the ten heard it, they were indignant. They are upset, okay? You know why they're upset? They're not upset because James and John are dropping the ball. They're upset because James and John got there first. They didn't think to ask for this, and now they're afraid they're going to miss the boat. I know that from what Mark chapter 10 says. I know that because the very night when Jesus was betrayed, in the upper room, before Jesus washes their feet, an argument breaks out among the 12. You know what the argument is? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? They're indignant because James and John thought to send their mom first. So Jesus now says, I got to teach them. I got to teach them. So Jesus called them, verse 25, and he said this. Now here comes the teaching of Jesus. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, now let's just talk about the word Gentiles. When Jesus says Gentiles, okay, he often is just talking about people who don't live for God, who deny God with their life, who are opposed to God. This is not a racial thing at this point. This is people who don't understand the truth about God. So he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. I'm going to say two other things about people's broken pursuit for greatness. First of all, it can be about position. These rulers of the Gentile. It says that they, they rule it over them. In Luke chapter 22, it's, it's expanded a little bit more. And Jesus says that the rulers of the Gentiles are the benefactors. What's where benefactor mean? It means they get the benefit. See, that's greatness on this earth. Greatness on this earth is, if I rule, then I get the benefit. And then I'm great. And this last piece here, he says, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Here Jesus calls some people great. But they use that greatness to press people down and they rule over. I saw this quote and I can't say it exactly right, but, but it was powerful. It was something like this, that the world's leaders are like a pyramid, already referenced that, and they stand above all the weak ones who serve him or her. But in God's economy, that pyramid is turned upside down. 
And the great one is on the bottom. Now, here comes the good part. And all the weak ones ride on his shoulders. Hmm. See, that's greatness in the economy of God. And Jesus is going to teach that. Let's see what Jesus teaches about this greatness. It's in our very next verse. He says, it should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So let's see some things that this, this tells us. First of all, we need to see that Jesus is calling to our desire to be great. Jesus wants you to desire to be great in the kingdom of God. He does. It's okay for you to want for your life to be used of God greatly. That's okay. But we have to be careful and there's some small nuances here and what that looks like. And what that looks like. Greatness in God's economy looks like two things. A servant and a slave. Servant here is where we get the word deacon. It's the word diakonos. And it just, and what it basically means is a menial servant. That is what the word diakonos originally meant. In the Greek culture where it was used, it meant a menial servant. The church has taken it and made it an official role of one who, who leads us to, to meet the physical needs of other people. But in Jesus' day, it just meant somebody that's doing menial work. So Jesus is saying, you want to be great in the kingdom? Do menial work. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Once in a while, somebody will come to me or to one of the other pastors and say, hey, you know, I'd really like to do such and such. I think I'd be great to, to teach this class or to, or to lead this group or, to, or do whatever. You know what we often say to them? I've said this to some of you in the room. Okay, do this first. Set up some chairs. We need a lot of help setting up chairs. Set up, set up the chairs. Help us with the chairs. Help us set up, help us tear down. What is that about? That's where greatness is, folks. That's where greatness is. And the reason is, the reason is there's no attaboys from everybody else. There's people down that hallway right now, and they're changing your baby's dirty diaper. Not that one, though. <laughs> and nobody's down there applauding them. Nobody's down there saying, good job, way to wipe. No, that's not what's happening. Nope. They're doing it, I trust, as un to the Lord, and God says, greatness. And I'm telling you, some of these people who have, who have served the Lord so faithfully, I think of men who have pastored tiny little churches faithfully for years, and they come before small little congregations, and they point in the Christ, and they point in the Jesus, and they point in the Christ for years upon years upon years, and I'm telling you, when they're in heaven... The names that come to our mind are going to be far in the back of the line and they're going to applaud. Way to be faithful, you servants. Or, he 
says a doulos. Now that's a whole other level, folks. He says, if you want to be great, you be a servant. If you want to be first, you be a doulos. Now what is a doulos? A doulos is a slave. Here's the difference in a slave in Bible times and a servant. The deaconos versus the doulos. The doulos and the deaconos are not the same thing. They may do some of the same, very same task. But the doulos has no will of his own. No will of his own. The deaconos decides, you know what? I think I'll set up these chairs and they set them up. Or I think I'll wait tables in Acts chapter 6. But the doulos has no will of his own. So what is Jesus saying? You want to be first? You want to be first? Surrender your will to God. I am not my own. I've been bought with price. I, I, don't, I don't own myself anymore. I don't own the things that I have. They aren't mine. I don't get to make the decisions for me. I don't get to do that because I'm a doulos of Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the books of your New Testament, at least a majority of them, he called himself a doulos of Christ, Romans 1.1. He said he's an underrower, right, Pastor Steve? Life verse, three weeks ago. Underrower, servant, but he's also a doulos. I got no will. This is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. I want you to see that, that Jesus promised them, he promised that, that if they responded to him, that he was going to reward them. This was his promise. Look at Matthew chapter 19. Look back just a couple of verses, okay? At verse number 28. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world... So this is the kingdom of God. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me also will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So incidentally, he just told that to James and John. You catching that? He's saying James and John. Now, I don't understand what all this means, okay? Don't, don't think I like, got all this picture in my mind. I know exactly what this is, all right? There's a lot of things I don't understand either, okay? But apparently, there are, 12 tri- there are 12 thrones in heaven. Jesus said it. And two of the people sitting on those thrones are James and John. Jesus just told him that. Now, if it were you or me, I like to think we'd be like, oh, wow, that's great. But not James and John. What do they do? Mom, 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 get us on the right and left. So much like me, so much like you. But look what he says. And everyone, verse number 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first, many who are great in man's eye, will be last. And the last, first. See what greatness is in the kingdom of God? The greatness is being so, is being so dedicated to the mission of Christ It is being so convinced of the gospel of Christ. 
It is being so true to what God has called you to that no matter the cost, no matter the, the impact in your life, you will allow your life to point to him. That it's not about you and me. It's not about this world. It's not about what this world has to offer. It is about my life as a dual loss of Christ pointing to Jesus. And that's greatness. That's greatness. Now, it's one thing for me to teach this, right? I got to live it too. And it's tough. And if you followed behind me every day, every hour of every day, you would see times where, whoo, I slip up and fall right into the same trap that I'm speaking against. You know why? Because although I'm up here right now reading and explaining the word of God, I am a man of flesh with a sin nature just like you. That's why you don't follow me or any other mere human. We follow Jesus. Go with me to verse number 28. This is an amazing expression that Jesus is going to share. And it is bringing the reality of what Jesus said right before us. We've heard him teach about what greatness is. We've heard him expound on on how we are to understand greatness. But we don't just have Jesus' words. We have his acts. His redeeming acts. Look what he says. Matthew chapter 20, verse number 28. He says, even as. So he's now drawing a comparison. He's laid out his lesson. It's like he's got it laid out on the chalkboard. And now he says, now, over here, let me show you what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. Just like I've been teaching you, let me show it to you. And he says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember my point Contrary to what the world says, contrary to what the world has to offer, true greatness is found in serving God, and Jesus walked it. And because of that walk, you and I can be saved today. This is the gospel. This is the first time that I know of in the New Testament. Now, you might correct me on this, but this is the first time in your New Testament where you find the vicarious, atoning work of Christ in your New Testament. Well, what does that mean? Here's what it means. This is the first time we see Jesus saying, I will die in your place for a reason. It's the first time. Look what Jesus says. Even as the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, hearkening back to Daniel chapter 7, verse number 13. Look at it. Jesus is saying, when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I am God in the flesh. He says, he came, the Son of Man came, not to be served. Not to be served. I'm telling you, true greatness is found in serving God. But you don't have a relationship with him through serving him. No, no, no. In reality, the only hope you have for a relationship with God is for you to be served by him. Whoa. 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. How? To give his life as a ransom for many. This word ransom, remember what I told you earlier we used the word doulos and that was slave? The word ransom is a technical word from a pagan Roman Greek culture. And it means, it's a technical term that meant the price paid to, to allow a slave to be free. So Jesus is saying, You're, you are slaves. But my life is the price required for you to be free. For you to be free. And he pays that ransom for. That word for means in the place of. In the place of. His life given in the place of many. Many. So Jesus' redeeming act is this. You have to be served by Christ. You, in all of your power and might and greatness here on earth, have got to humble yourself and say, Jesus, Jesus, I need you to serve me. And humble enough to accept that. You know, it takes humility to be served. It truly does. It takes humility to accept someone helping you. It takes humility. And many people refuse Christ because they're too great in the world's eyes to be served by the great one. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 6, speaking of Jesus, said, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a slave so that we can have a relationship with him. Have you been served today by Jesus? Are you, are you, are you, try, are you, are you reaching for greatness? according to the man's standards, according to the world's system. Listen to the teaching of Jesus today and reject that lie that says man, mankind, this world offers greatness. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It offers a grave when you're done. You put everything back in the box and you put it away. But Jesus offers greatness with him for eternity. But we must be served with the cross of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you didn't purchase us with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Lord, that's what you bought us with. 
Lord, I pray for anybody here today that up until now they've been too proud to receive, too proud to accept, too proud to be served. Lord, I understand that. I've been there. I fight it every day. But Lord, we are in need of you. So in our sin, in our wretchedness, in our fallenness, we call out to you that you might save us, that you might serve us, that your cross would be the price for our freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.